So joining me today on the podcast is Craig Rutherford of the Nanaimo Rowing Club. Is that correct? That is correct. Perfect. Um, Craig, what's your current... Uh, so what's, what's the full gamut of your responsibilities with the club right now? And uh, when did you start working with the Nanaimo Rowing Club? Um, basically, I'm the head coach right now. So it involves pretty much everything and anything, overseeing the day-to-day training of every athlete in the club as well as supervising a couple of assistant coaches that provide support with our programming. And basically all the administration for the club, as well as any equipment repairs and anything else that sort of comes up, is in my court to deal with. So there's sort of a lot going on. It's a good range of options and opportunities to keep myself going. And so where are you guys rowing out of right now? What's your location? What's your home base? And, and all that stuff. Uh, so we're right now we're on Long Lake. The club was originally started there on Long Lake. Uh, our race distance is 2,000 meters and our lake is 1,500 meters. So it's a bit of an intriguing challenge with trying to train for a distance that you can't actually practice in full, but we get around that in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And right now you have even some more problems with the environment right now. Yeah, we've been uh, basically covered with ice for the last two months. We've been on the water three times since the start of the year, so it's been a interesting and tough go to find the right amount of training volume without actually being able to do the sport in its entirety. And this isn't actually a normal occurrence. This is something a little bit unique to this year. Yeah, it's just both for out here. Usually when I lived out in Ontario, we'd, every year you'd be off the water for three or four months. But in terms of the Nanaimo Rowing Club, I think this is the longest we've ever been off the water. The average year we might lose two, three days to ice, but that's it. And obviously when you're off the water, it's not like you're just going to stop training. You're going to be doing a lot of work on the erg, I imagine. So how does that impact the training season as a whole and what you can expect in terms of what you're getting out of your training? Uh, In terms of just pure physiology of the athletes, I actually prefer to have this extended amount of time on the rowing machine. But in terms of technique, it puts us a step behind some of the other clubs that have been on the water without stopping at all. So it's a bit of a toss up it's every once in a while it's kind of a nice change because now we can get the athletes exactly where they want them to be at this point in the season and have set metrics for it so you can push yourself more physically with the erg um, and hit those parameters but that there's something lacking in the technique and that's where the rowing on the water piece comes into play right yeah exactly the erg you get constant feedback every stroke how much pressure you're putting on but there's so many other parts that go into it in terms of getting the boat to move through the water it's not just a power sport there's so much technique involved mm-hmm. um and that's again part of why i brought you here today is i really like that aspect a lot of what i've read about rowing um you get so much um importance is 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 put on the technical aspects of it the technique um as much as it is very much a power sport there is so much technique goes into it and that's uh, a lot of how I like to look at my sport, kettlebell sport in particular. Um, well, what do you like so much about rowing? Obviously, you've made this more or less a career choice now. So what got you in and why'd you stay in it? Um, I started in high school. Um, right away, I wasn't quite sure why I liked it, but I kept doing it. And uh, as I sort of matured as an athlete moving into university, I just loved that ability just to push yourself to the line and sit right at that line for extended periods of time. And just in terms of everything surrounding the sport, the culture of the sport is like really, really great people. 
really great environments. You can go anywhere in the world, show up to a rowing club, and you can usually get a row in. And at this point, like, I just love giving back to the sport now that I don't compete, compete quite so much. But, yeah, if I can get more people as passionate about it as the people I've met throughout my rowing career, it's just job well done for me. Do you think it's relatively easy and practical for people to get into this sport? Like, so one of the things that we say about kettlebells is it's simple, it's portable, it's very practical. Um, you don't need a home gym with all the, uh, all the frills. Um, it's just really simple and portable. So with rowing, obviously you need a body of water though. We talked about, you can still do work on the erg and that's helpful as well. But, um, yeah. So what do you think about its practicality? I, anytime there's a body of water in a rowing club, it's usually pretty easy to join. I mean, most clubs run several classes a year and really after six, seven sessions of sort of being coached, you can do it on your own and get a workout out of it. Sort of our classes are six sessions run over three weeks. And after that, people are usually quite confident to join in with our normal training group. Do you get many people who are less apprehensive about the rowing itself and more apprehensive about getting on the water? That's usually the biggest hurdle to overcome is people just being comfortable around the water if they haven't necessarily grown up around it. Um, The boats do seem quite tippy when you first start out, but you sort of get over that within the first couple of hours of being on the water. And after that, it's just pure enjoyment. Yeah, yeah, after they find their sea legs. Um, Okay, so what do you see uh, in the future ahead as far as your uh, career with rowing goes? Um, Well, as of right now, I'm coaching full-time at the rowing club, which is quite enjoyable i have a couple years left on my contract there it is my home club so there's always that sort of passion to stay with it but i wouldn't rule out moving somewhere else but for now opportunity arises arises, so well you've already had some opportunities arise can you tell us about um your your well i i don't know if it's your latest position but as far as i know in 2016 you were named the uh head coach of the canadian national junior the women's sculling team. Yeah, so I was put in charge of the women's junior national sculling team right. uh, leading up to the what's called the Canamex Regatta. So it's an international regatta between Canada, U.S., and Mexico that takes place every year. So I got ended up with actually the men's and the women's sculling team due to a conflict with another coach not being able to make it. Um, it was a really great experience. So I basically I had an athlete that went through trials and made that team. And since I was qualified, I was also brought along to coach that team with a couple of other coaches for the other programs. So we had a training camp down in Sarasota, Florida for 10 days, and then it culminated with the racing event against the Mexicans and the Americans. Uh, The women's quadruple skulls, which is the largest boat that I was coaching, it came away with a gold medal, which was a really great result for us. Congratulations. And then a couple of the smaller boats picked up a few silver medals, so we had quite a good haul going on there. Right on. Uh, did you kind of expect this turnout heading into it, or was that a bit of a surprise? Uh, we had a strong feeling that the quad was going to do really well. We weren't quite sure how the smaller boats were going to back us up, but uh, the quad definitely were quite dominant in the race. We were expecting them to squeak out a victory, and they really just uh, showed everyone else how to do it, which was nice to see. And then the uh, other boats came together and backed themselves and came out with some strong results. What made the quad so... Um... What, what do you think put a, a lot of confidence behind that quad? What, did, was it compared to the prevailing standards of race times and, and what their, how their times compared um, historically? Or was it just you had like a great group of people in that 
on that team or what was it? Um, so the, we do trials every year out in Ontario and with, from that they take crews to go to Junior Worlds and then the next group goes to this Canamex regatta. Uh, the women's quad that I was coaching that was selected at the end of the trials actually time trialed and was within a couple of seconds of the crew that they were sending to Junior Worlds which was an absolutely insane result and they actually hit the standard to go to Junior Worlds or to be nominated to Junior Worlds. But, of course, there was a boat that was faster than them, so they went to Canamex. Right, right. Um, so very impressive nonetheless. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the programs that you run with the Nanaimo Rowing Club? Uh, what's available to newbies? Uh, what sort of programs you're currently running with the team? So within the club, our largest group is our junior program, so that's high school athletes. So we have quite a large contingent of high school athletes uh, they train anywhere between two and nine times per week. Uh, most athletes start out two to three times a week, and as they become more and more passionate about the sport, they get into it a bit more, and they sort of self-select into how much they train. So the top athletes have decided for themselves that they want to train at that volume, and they see really good results because of that. Um, we also have a master's, which is 27-plus, and a senior program, which is anyone that's out of high school, so university-age rowers. Also train at the club year-round. Um, a lot of our older masters are a little more weather-dependent, so we'll see them in the summer months and not so much in the winter. But there is a uh, pretty solid group of them that come out and train dry land three times a week through the winter and try and get on the water at least once a week. So they have a nice little workout group. And then our senior program is usually starts when the university season ends, so... A lot of our former rowers that are now off rowing for universities in Canada and the United States return back to their home club, train with us for the summer before they return back to their university programs. Uh, did you row back in Ontario? I rowed in university in Ontario. Okay. Um, what's the popularity of rowing like in Nanaimo compared to maybe other places? Uh, the Nanaimo club is still considered pretty small in terms of rowing clubs. Um, some Victoria has a very large club. St. Catharines, Ontario has a very large club. Um, you know, I was definitely grown in the last couple of years, so we're sort of moving out of that small size into sort of a mid-sized club, which is nice. So it's an increasing popularity in Nanaimo for sure. Is Long Lake always going to be the, 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 the home terrain for the Nanaimo Rowing Club, or is there interest in looking somewhere else to host a lot of your training? For the medium to long term, I would say it's going to be Long Lake just due to there not being another suitable body of water near the city of Nanaimo. What makes it so suitable? Basically, it's fairly sheltered from the wind. We lose very few days to windy weather. Um, normally, it doesn't ice up because we're on the west coast, except for this year. Um, we have looked at being down on the ocean, but with metal components on the boat, the salt water takes a lot of wear and tear on the equipment. So. It's sort of a high cost, and it's hard to keep the equipment running when you're rowing in salt water. Um, what's the event you're most looking forward to this year with your uh, rowers? Every year in Ontario in August, there's quite a large event called Royal Canadian Henley. It takes place over five days. It attracts crews from all over Canada and North America. Even a couple from Europe occasionally roll in. So we're looking to take 10 to 20 athletes out there this summer and hopefully end up in a few uh, finals and see how we do. Right on. I imagine you're a little bit more confident than see how we do. <laughs> but uh, 
Uh, it sounds like you're doing great things over there. Um, do you have any, now this, I don't want you to pick favorites, but do you have any standout athletes? We have, well, in the last year, we had Riley Knight rowing with us. She's now rowing for the University of Western Ontario. She was part of the crew that I coached at the Canamex Regatta and the Quad. Um, just absolutely phenomenal athlete. She's a lightweight woman. She's probably one of the best in the country for her age. Um, so she's off at Western for the year, but hopefully she'll be back training with us this summer. Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, building on that, what makes her such a phenomenal athlete? What are the attributes that she has and, and, uh, uh, you know, what did she have when she came to you and what did she leave with after you were done with her? So when Riley came to us, I'd like to say we made Riley up from scratch, but we didn't. Riley was a competitive gymnast before she came to us, so she just had just so much natural strength and power as an athlete. Um, basically, when she came to us, we had to work on that cardio base, a little bit of anaerobic threshold, and within two years, she was the top athlete in the club. Um, where she can go from here is will be really interesting now rowing in the university program. We hope to see even more progress from her, but mm -hmm. you never know. From what I've read, um, now rowing being, again, still very much a power sport in many ways, but also very much an endurance sport. And you could say that in the interest of finishing ahead of your competitors, being a naturally gifted endurance athlete is probably the, you know, the, the card that you want to have in your pocket that you can play. But a gymnast, now a gymnast, they tend to be, I would say, probably less endurance, more strength athletes. So again, with that in mind, what makes her so special? I think she's Riley. now blended that just raw power, and then she's incorporated training. We've done testing to figure out where she was physiologically deficient, and we tailored that training, lots of volume, like... So we're talking three by 30 minutes isn't an unusual workout for her. So basically 90 minutes of straight rowing. So you've, you worked on her weaknesses and didn't bother to, uh, to, to train her strengths, the things that she already had necessarily, but maybe take advantage of those. Yeah, we took advantage of it. Uh, rowing, so there's so, such specific muscle groups. So she had sort of all the complementary muscle groups, really good stability. So it allowed us when we were doing weight training to focus a lot more on the big muscle groups that we're using. With a lot of athletes, we have to get their whole body in a condition to actually do weights. But with her, it was, okay, she was ready to do weights so we could tailor the program a bit more to see quicker results. Mm -hmm. This might be a general question, but is it easier to take an athlete with a strength background and make them a train them in endurance or to have an endurance athlete and fill in the missing strength components to make them a great rower? That's tough to say. Uh, the power is really the ceiling, right? If your power isn't high enough, you can't bring the other energy systems in behind. So if an athlete at no point is willing to gain strength, they're not going to see very good performance. If they have strength and, and they're not willing to train endurance, they're also not going to see performance. So I would say it's probably equal between the two. I could take a really good endurance athlete and as long as they're willing to train them up to be an elite rower, mostly working on strength because they have that big base and the opposite goes with an endurance or with a power athlete. Mm -hmm. Do you know of any examples of uh, any of the top rowers in say uh, the Olympics or the national teams that came from a background more or less completely different from rowing and then became one of the best of all time? Jerry Brown, who rowed for the Canadian national team in, I believe the 2012 Olympics, 
uh, came from the McMaster football program. <laughs> that is interesting. And I believe over the course of a couple of years, made the Canadian national team and went to an Olympics. Wow. Do you know what got him into rowing? From what I've heard, I haven't, I've only met him once or twice, is he saw the Canadian men's eight win gold in the 2008 Olympics, uh, was so inspired by it, he decided he wanted to give it a go and just jumped headfirst into it. What's, um, what are some of your club achievements to date for the Nanaimo Rowing Club? So we have a, in the past year, it was really good year for us. Uh, we won our first uh, high school national championship in the junior women's single. Uh, we also took a second place in that event and I believe a fourth place in that event. So for different boat classes, but all there. Um, before that, we'd medaled four or five different times at the nationals. Um, other than that, it's sort of the last year was a big year for us. So mm-hmm. we sort of came together and we've done it all. So, and is there um, a uh, a prize that you've that you guys really want to get that you, that you have your eye on that you haven't yet achieved? So we're, we have the Canadian national gold. We're now going for the Royal Canadian Henley Gold, which is definitely quite a bit harder to win at that event they only give out the gold medal so there's no second or third place really it's you only get the medal if you get first and uh, our club hasn't quite got there yet so that's her take all yeah that's the big goal this year and next year very cool maybe now you can educate us on the sport of rowing itself um how do how do you break down the common races like 2000 meter versus 1000 meter versus head races versus what so our Olympic distance that you'll see in the Olympic Games World Championships is 2,000 meters. Um, other events that you'll commonly see is a head race, which can be anywhere between three and eight kilometers. Um, and then every so often you'll see the shorter sprint races that are 500, 1,000, 1,500. What sort of proportion makes up a rower's year in terms of how many of this race they're doing versus how many of that race they're doing, and how do you prepare for that? Uh, it depends on the level of athlete, sort of working in terms of a development athlete. Um, you'll, they'll race usually two to three head races, usually in the fall and winter months, and then coming into April, May, June, they'll be basically every second weekend will be at a sprint race or 2,000-meter to 1,000-meter event, mm-hmm. and then usually working towards a major competition either june or august depending which one we attend okay do you have a favorite style Uh, of race i like the 2000 meter i'm a traditionalist i just it's it's the hardest distance to row at the highest possible speed so that is the classic race that's the classic race that's rowing okay and is that across singles doubles quads that's a a consistent distance yeah okay um how do you guys how do you guys train that on the erg or how do you train for it on the erg uh so basically we're looking to peak at one event a year. So we periodize our train. So, you know, 12 months out, we start with that big aerobic base work, lots and lots of volume. That'll take up a good chunk of our year, about half the year. And then moving into it, we sort of work that anaerobic threshold for a bit, aerobic threshold, all of that. And then we start working VO2 max work, which everyone loves. And then we get into the... Could you sort of sense the sarcasm? <laughs> and then we get sort of right right before race time, we get into that speed work, that high power stuff to really finish it off. Along with that, we usually have year-round weight training to complement our on-the-water training. Okay. So I've asked you already about um, like what makes Riley such a great rower, but in general, what makes a good rower in terms of not just the physiology, but also the the more technical components, how a, a rower rows? A lot of it is just 
basically having the mental focus to acquire the technique. Um, it's every, when races come down to hundredths of seconds, tenths of seconds, a lot of the time as the athlete gets better, we're talking about like a millimeter of difference on where they're placing their oar in the water, how their drive is being applied. Like basically in some cases we're video analysis, taking it down frame by frame to find the little things they're doing wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of sort of, finding the athlete that can row with that technique um basically there's a required amount of flexibility if you can't get into the basic ideal position you're not going to get to an elite level so with especially male athletes we find a lot of them coming to us that are not particularly flexible so we have to spend a fair bit of time working on that just to get them to the basic positions we need them in to do the skill properly where do you need this flexibility um, always hamstrings is the biggest one. So it's getting basically getting your shoulders over in front of your hips is tough for a lot, a lot of the athletes that we see because especially being in a quad dominant sport, you'll find that the hamstrings are tightening up the more they work the quads. Yeah. I imagine if you're fond of pizza, it's hard to get your chest that far forward as well. You see that with some of the masters athletes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's this big obstacle in yeah, front of yeah. you, somewhere between your quads and your chest. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in in what what makes a good rower in a short versus a long distance? What are, what are the some of the key features of a good rower in a short race versus a long race? Both with the technical components and the physiological. Uh, for a short race, it's uh, basically the ability to get through the stroke cycle quite quickly. Um, the shorter the race is, the less worried you are about the boat traveling a whole lot of distance between strokes because you can really just stay in that high energy zone, build up a little lactic acid and hope for the best. Uh, in the longer distances, the athlete needs to be working at a higher power, but also making sure that they're not slowing the boat down when the oar's out of the water. So on the way back up, anything that's the boat going off balance, the oars bouncing off the water, is going to cost you that tenth, that hundredth of a second. So as much the more you can minimize that, the faster you're going to go. There's uh, a saying that I'm fond of that I actually read out of a rowing book, and I use it with my kettlebell athletes all the time, is that good technique is difficult to learn and easy to forget. And how do you keep... Um, your athletes refining that technique throughout the year and not just having them think, well, you know, I went through the beginner stages and I don't really need to spend that much mental focus or energy focusing on the technique stuff. I can just work now. I have a couple of different ways I approach this. So I like to do a fair bit of video analysis. So we'll really break it down after practice, let them know what they're doing well, what they're doing wrong. And this is with the whole group together? Um, it depends. You, okay. So if we have a quad out, I'll usually do like the four athletes together because a lot of it is synchronizing them together as well is a lot of it. And that I've read that that's actually when you're working on a team, it's more important, the synchronization than the actual technique. Although that's still important, it the technique will take a mild backseat to the synchronization of the rowers. Yeah, it's sort of a half joke with rowing coaches when you're working with a crew boat is if you're going to do something wrong, just get everybody to do it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but in theory, we'd like everyone to row perfectly. But if you put four athletes in a boat making the exact same mistake against four athletes in a boat making four different mistakes, mm. the one making the exact same mistake is going to move quicker. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like a lesser of two evils. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Um, so now uh, that leads us into the next portion. So doubles versus quads versus singles. 
Um, how do you choose which athletes are going where or and which ones are suited to all of them? Sort of trial and error. We do a lot of time control pieces. We usually try and get sort of one time trial per weekend. So throughout the season, the athletes are going to get through a variety of boats. We'll see where pairings match up, work well together, where people are stronger in the single. Um, the single obviously would move slower than a quadruple skull. So it's slightly different energy needs. If you're talking a race taking a minute longer than another race is a big difference. So you mentioned that if you, as long as, even if you're making mistakes, as long as you're making fewer mistakes or fewer different mistakes, you're going to do better. Um, what are some of the common mistakes or the most common mistakes? Uh, probably the most common mistake you'll see is athletes not placing the oar in the water right at the start of the stroke. So they'll start driving with the big leg muscles before the oar is actually planted in the water. If you're pulling on air, it's not very dense. You're not getting a lot of propulsion out of it. So you want to have that oar right in the water as the drive starting. Um, another one that you'll quite often see, especially with newer athletes, is they're in a such a rush to take the next stroke, they'll move very quickly back towards the starting position, which means their weight is slamming against the direction the boat's going. Mm -hmm. So you'll see them moving quite quickly into the stern of the boat, and then the stern will take a big dip, and you'll lose a whole bunch of speed, and then they have to pick the weight of the boat up again. Okay. Um, what are some of the most important things to remember them? What, what do you tell your athletes all the time? Um, the big one that they probably hear me screaming across the lake on a daily basis is ratio. So we define ratio as you want. It depends on how, what speed you're going, but it's drive time to the recovery time, so the way back up. So you don't want to be moving back up at a quicker space, pace than you're driving through the water. That's just, Can you unpack that a bit more? So, so you're saying like drive and stuff, you're using all these terms. What do these mean? So drive, we define as the time the oar goes in the water. So when you're actually applying force to the handle. So, the, so basically you're in your, at the start of the stroke, legs are bent, you're leaning forward, arms are fully extended. And then you're going to, we call it the drive, and you're driving the legs down, moving the body back and pulling in with the arms. And that's the end of the drive. And then from there we call it the recovery phase. So it's making your way back up to that starting position, arms back out, leaning forward, bending the legs, getting into sort of a crouched position mm -hmm. in the stern of the boat, so towards the back. And what is that proper ratio? We like to see, like, when they're just rowing along in a sort of a steady state workout, like taking twice as long, three times as long on the way back up. Oh, um, okay. At race pace, you'll often see them going a little bit closer to one-to-one. -to -one. But if you're seeing them heading back up at twice the speed that they're driving down at, it's not a very effective way to move the boat down the lake. Is there some disagreement about this between coaches? Um, a little bit. Is this sort of, you want a certain rate of striking. You want to be putting the oar in the water so many times, be at a high rate. Um, but it's sort of finding out where that athlete is going to be going out too hard, not pacing themselves, you know, because if, if you're going out at, say, 45 strokes a minute, that's not something that most athletes can sustain for six, seven, eight minutes. And I imagine this ratio changes depending on the race, the style or the, the distance. Yeah. yeah. So if you're in a longer head race, you're going to have more ratio. If you're in a 500 meter race, I wouldn't expect to see any sort of even one to one would be impressive if someone was letting the boat run that much is there are there any traditional methods of coaching or coaching cues that have persisted to this day that you and maybe some of your colleagues don't really agree with 
fairly minor. I mean, a few things just like with how the recovery happens the way back up is just like, do you need to get the arms fully extended right away? A lot of like people will be like, yeah, you have to get those 100% out mm -hmm. and then you have to bring the body right over, then the legs up and then others will look at more sort of semi-synchronized. So the arms start away, the body comes forward, then the legs come up. Same thing with the drive is how long do you go with just legs before you bring the body and arms in? Mm -hmm. So it sort of depends who you asked. It is a lot of minutia and it's a lot of maybe over analysis. Yeah. And I mean, at the highest level, like they're attaching sensors to the oars and the, the foot plates and you're getting force curves for every stroke, but that's really get, digging deep into it. Okay. What's, what's a good warm up for like a 2000 meter? So for our sort of race warm up, it's it takes the entire thing is about a half an hour warm up before we actually race. So some of that we'll do like, a, actually it's a bit over half an hour because we'll do a bit of it on land before we launch. So sort of some dynamic exercises, activation, that sort of stuff. Um, then we'll get on the water, a few drills just to reinforce technique we incorporate in our warm up, as well as we like to bring in a little bit of race pace, that sort of stuff, a practice start to the race because that's a bit technical. Uh, the idea is, is you want to be feeling good but warm when you're sitting in the box, breathing but not breathing hard, just the body totally ready to go. So a lot of it's just timing it to the start of your race. So it's really, a lot of it's having time management, know if it's behind schedule, on schedule, that sort of stuff. So you're completing your warm up and not sitting there for 10 minutes getting cold before your race actually starts. And do you get the athletes to uh, take their heart rate before, right before the race and, or while they're warming up just so they maybe don't go too high or? Um, we don't, not on race day. We usually, we work through our race warm up, especially leading up to a race for several weeks beforehand. We'll start our entire workout with our race warm up just so they're super comfortable. It's what they do every time and they need to, then they'll know what, just how they feel. They'll know if they're warm or not. Okay. That. That's an interesting point. How important is replicating, doing the same thing every time before, like leading up to an event? So making things, um, they say that, uh, especially if you're a competitor, that training is rehearsal for competition, right? Yeah. How important is that? Um, for me, that's like one of the things I really key on is a lot of the things we do in an average practice, I want it to be connected to how we're going to compete. So it's one thing, oh, I want you to even working on technique it's okay well i want you to fix this but then if we go into do, doing some sort of race pace I, they can't forget about what i just told them to do they need to incorporate that technique at race pace it's not two separate things there's not good rowing lightly and then we row hard and not well yeah so yeah. i'm really big and warm-ups got to be just like race day even so if we're going out to do a time trial, which we usually try and do once, twice a week, is we treat that like race day. So they get a set start time for their time trial. So they'll be given the time in the boathouse, they'll be given the current time, and they need to get their equipment down, get their warm-up done, be ready to go at the time that they've been prescribed. So when it comes to race day, it's just an average Tuesday or an average Friday or an average Saturday for them. Um, when your athletes are finished an event, do you get them together and have them reflect on things they did well, things they did not so well, kind of like how they say is a good idea to do with your athletes in like the NCCP modules, get them to reflect and stuff like that? Yeah, we normally do that. I mean, a lot of the times they're racing several events a day. 
so you don't quite get a lot of catch-up time with them. So mm-hmm. if in that case, we usually get together at the end of the day, just talk about the day as a whole, how it went. Uh, when we're in big competitions, we usually try and pick it apart a little bit more, especially if we're sort of progressing from a heat, looking for things that we can do better in the semifinal. If we've done the semifinal, looking for things that are going to get us that step ahead for the final. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. I want to talk about race strategies. Yeah. Um, I got thinking about this recently because I've been, I have a few sculling books. This one I really dig. A lot of it just due to the language that the author uses. I've taken a lot of the quotes from here and put it in um, my own kind of kettlebell handbook because I like the way he talks about um, technique and being mindful and stuff like that. Uh, But towards the end of the book, he's talking about race strategies. And um, it's, it's a topic that comes up in kettlebell sport a little bit, but it's not really talked about. And, uh, and the general feeling is that with a kettlebell sports set, you kind of start at an even pace that you know you're capable of doing for, you know, six to eight minutes. And then in those last few minutes, you kind of sprint. And that's kind of been the predominant race strategy quote-unquote race strategy um, in kettlebell sport, but there's different ways to look at it, at least from what I gathered from this book. And given that the sports are very similar in in various ways, I wondered if you could give us your insight into the different race strategies you can do based on certain parameters like the athlete. Are they a strength athlete versus versus a naturally gifted endurance athlete? And does that um, lend itself to adopting one strategy over another. Um, obviously there are things unique to rowing, such as the environment that we don't in kettlebells. We don't really experience that much. There are certain things like if it's really cold, the bells are cold and maybe that'll have an effect on, um, uh, uh, slippage or your hands cramping or just, uh, calluses tearing and stuff like that. But, um, just definitely more unique to rowing, but, um, yeah, I'll let you go ahead and maybe expand on that. So in rowing, it's, always a subject of debate i'm sure in any other sport that requires some sort of pacing the uh current sort of vogue race plan that everyone's sort of promoting right now is equal splitting so we break usually break races down into 500 meter sections we're talking about a 2000 meter race so you sort of you'll do your opening 500 meters you'd expect sort of a one second drop off of that time for your second 500 two second drop on the third 500 and then sprinting it out so getting roughly equal to your opening 500 meter and the final 500 meter um that's sort of what the best boats in the world are doing right now in order to win races but not everybody is the best athlete in the world on race day so there's sort of you can you'll see quite a few different race plans going so you see some athletes who know they don't have the gas to hold the pace into that sort of that third fourth 500 so you'll see them going out a little bit harder in the first 500 trying to get up on the field and sort of make them come back to them and then you'll sort of see that desperation in the last 500 meters. Um, what you'll see a lot with junior athletes, sort of in the, especially in Canada, is they'll, you'll have athletes or boats that'll blast out really, really hard in that first 500. And then for the next two 500, it's basically like they're resting up waiting 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 and the last 500 they'll just really go for it and take the pace up again um 
one benefit to that, which I'm I'm not a huge fan of doing it that way, is if you're dealing. I with, can imagine that's a bit of a gamble. It's a big gamble. Yeah. But if you a lot of time if you're deal, racing against less experienced crews, they'll see a a boat row away from them in the first 500, assume they're not going to catch them, decide the race is going to over, give up, and you can. Mm-hmm win a race with only only really rowing 500 meters out of 2,000 meters. But. So I opened this up with um, uh, talking about some genetic factors like um, a strength versus endurance athlete, but the, one of the more potentially even more interesting things here that you're touching on is the mental and psychological aspect of, okay, what are the consequences or advantages to taking the lead on your other competitors because some of them yeah might see that happen and this it'll just zap their motivation and we know that in competition especially uh, especially in the high levels of uh, competition um it's the it's that champion mindset that can really make the difference right yeah i mean it's sort of some of that depends sort of what the athlete prefers especially in the the single is some people like to get out there, sit in front of it, and they can see what everyone's doing if they're out in front. And res- so if someone's putting a big push in, they can respond to that. Don't let the push work keep grinding down on the athletes behind them. Um, some other athletes, I was one of them, likes to sit a little bit back, sort of middle of the pack, and just know that you have the raw power to just really destroy everyone in the last 500 meters. And a lot of the time, if you have a crew that's been sitting out in front for... 1700 meters they maybe don't have 300 meters left at any particular speed so a crew that's kept in touch and decides to charge through might beat them out especially at lower levels mm-hmm. um if in the last olympics it was uh, really interesting to look at what was happening for pacing because in brazil the water was not calm for the entire course if anyone saw a few crews sank and that sort of stuff so you would have crews that totally changed their race plan to really work set up to really work hard in the calm sections knowing that everyone was going to be slowed down by the really rough unrollable water so if they got set themselves out to a lead and then everyone's going the same speed then there's another section of calm water they really pushed hard they could sort of gain more gain more so you saw just due to conditions everyone changing their race plan and not necessarily racing at their race pace for the entire course there were sort of some survival sections happening how do you know when there's calm water? Is this something that you kind of see ahead of you, or do you know, only know it once you get into it? The nice thing about rowing regattas is there's races going on basically all day. So, And most courses, in order to be spectator-friendly, you can watch or bike down the side of the course. So, Especially at international events, there would have been coaches and staff biking up and down the course, checking out what was rough, what was not, as well as with it being the Olympics, they'd been training on that water for a, a bit of time beforehand. Mm-hmm. How much does it matter to to know who you're going up against when it comes to your strategy? A little bit. I mean, especially at the junior level, there's sort of you you know all the other clubs and schools quite well and what they tend to do. So you can sort of plan to even if you're not necessarily better than them. If you're close, you can change something, tweak something that you might get a one up on them, but then the next time they're going to go do the same thing to you. So it's a, it's a little <laughs> bit of back and forth. And everyone, I mean, no one's super intense about it at the junior level, but there's a, always a good bit of fun and a good bit of thinking. And, and this can be true of all sports, again, that include pacing. But um, there's this idea of not showing your whole hand yeah. in rowing. Can, can you unpack that? 
Um, a lot of times if there's sort of a major competition coming up and you're racing the same boats over and over again in the lead up or some of the same boats is you don't not necessarily put in 100% or put your entire race plan in place because you don't want them to know if you're putting sort of a move in like a harder section in the middle of one of the 500s you don't want them just knowing that it's only a move if they've seen it three or four times but if it's the first time they've seen it they might think you're now taking the pace up and that's what you're going to hold for the next however 100 meters or left 300 meters 400 meters so if you can sort of keep something to yourself until a major competition and then just sort of pull something out change it on them it might throw them off a little bit especially if you've raced them a ton of times other crews tend to expect the same things from you rather than what you're actually going to do is it easy to fall for some of these moves that uh the, the roads are i mean it's there's only so much variation at this point in terms of the strategies you can use and and we all basically know the the, the breakdown of the strategies you can use but um yeah i mean is, is it easy to fall for for that Sort of like little changes, no, not really. But if you see a crew that normally sits back off the start, all of a sudden rocket out to the front of the field, you get a little bit concerned. Yeah, or you just to, don't know what to think. What to think, or even more concerning is the crew that usually leads most of the races decide to sit back in the middle of the field. And you that would know, make me nervous. You know for sure they're holding <laughs> something back and you're waiting for it to show up and then you're getting tense and you're watching them. And that's what you want other crews to do is watch you. They're not focused on what they're doing. They're so worried that, okay, I, I'm normally leading this race against you. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, I'm sitting 10 meters back from you looking nice and relaxed. And all you're doing is rolling with your head off to the side, not thinking about what you're doing, thinking about what I'm going to do. When am I going to move? When am I coming after you? And then when it finally comes, then all of a sudden you panic. You're going, taking your right way up to something unsustainable that you've never yes. done before, right? Yeah. And then... I- that's probably part of the strategy too is make your opponents nervous because that brings the heart rate up and inhibits your uh your control over your energy system yeah so is there counter strategy and how important is it to not do the counter strategy and just stick with your game plan for what we normally work with is our race plans are very internal Internal to the athlete or internal internal to to the the boat? Okay. So we're running through the same race plan no matter what's going on in the race. So up until, I mean, you're going to sprint hard no matter what, especially if you're down. But to that point is we're not concerned about where other crews are sitting until the last 200 meters. We're going to run through our pace and we're going to get to that sort of 1800 meter mark as quickly as we can, knowing that if we change something, that's not going to get us there as quickly as we can. And that's sort of makes you immune as long as your athletes are used to doing that. If they've decided that they really are paying attention to what other crews are doing in previous races and expecting stuff, that's that's when it gets hard to contend with. Mm-hmm. So we, I try to avoid doing counter moves and sort of stay internal. But This comes back to um, rehearsing for competition, right? Getting getting comfortable with a way of doing something and being able to do it well. This was kind of funny. I read this. Uh, sometimes when people look at the sport of rowing, they're like, oh, oh, it looks so peaceful and easy. I should try that. Um, I'm, meanwhile, I'm sure on the inside when you're doing it, it's anything but. So do you, do you get that reaction a lot? And how do you, how do you react to that? Uh, yeah, we do get it a lot. And I mean, it, it can be peaceful. It can be really enjoyable. I mean, you have people that go out and they do it and they have a really 
not a super intense row, like nice body of water, just sort of out for a paddle, and that's part of the sport, but it's not part of racing. So it's sort of, you have that recreational facet, which is quite nice. It's really enjoyable. I mean, I every so often, if I see it's like really nice, calm day, I'll hop out in a boat and row around with pretty low intensity and just really enjoy moving the boat through the water. And when you're doing a, uh, a paddle like that, is that, is that conducive to maintaining or refining your technique or is it is it just mindless enough to not really be super beneficial to refining your technique uh, it depends how you approach it mm-hmm. um at this point in time when i go out there and i'm paddling it's definitely 100 percent mindless <laughs> <laughs> but for uh, pure enjoyment pure enjoyment just part of being on the water in the sport just doing it but in terms of going out and doing a light row with coaching with even with your brain switch on it can be very beneficial because you can slow it down you can really break the stroke down you can take half strokes you can just really focus on one part of it and not worry about covering a set amount of distance or putting a set amount of work in and then hopefully in the next row with intensity you're going to take that progress that you've gained and incorporate it Now, in, in kettlebell sport, there's a lot of self-proclaimed experts in, uh, in the style of kettlebell sport lifting. And um, especially in North America, I don't, know if a, I don't know if most of it is well grounded just because it's a sport that originated in Europe and we're very new to it. And I don't think there's a whole lot of formal education or coaching um, behind a lot of these people who who claim to be experts. So we have a lot of people potentially giving uh, uh, different coaching points and maybe different perspectives on how to do it the quote unquote correct way. Is there one right way to row? How much latitude is there on that? So I wouldn't say there is one right way to row. Um, What we're working on sort of as clubs within Canada and within a country, a rowing country, is sort of a Canadian technique. So if you could take two athletes from other sides of the country, pop them in a boat together and they would row the exact same, is the long-term goal. We're definitely not there yet. There's people that resist, coaches from outside countries that want to change things that are now live in Canada. But the idea is, is there's one way that Canadians are going to row. I don't know if it's ever going to happen, but it's closer than it was when I started. You would see like clubs that are located 20 kilometers away rowing completely different. Mm-hmm. Now you're seeing that less and less. But if you looked at, say, the way a crew from Canada rode in an international event versus a crew from Great Britain, be totally different. There'd be so many. It's not totally different. It's still rowing. But in terms of the nuances and like minor things, there's quite a few differences. For, for someone who's broken it down, yeah. it probably looks completely different. Yes. Okay. So there's no one right way. Every country think, obviously thinks their way is better than everyone else's or else they would do it the same way as another country. And you will see countries do that, decide okay. to row. We're, that's it. We're rowing like New Zealand. We're rowing like Australia or something like that. What are the specific um, points of the stroke that change the most from club to club? Um, a lot of it is sort of the upper body position, so how far back the athlete will go during the drive. So whether they stay quite upright or they're sort of laying back at sort of 15, 20, even 30 degrees, that sort of thing is the biggest changes you'll see. 
And a lot, some of it's where the power application is put on. So you'll see a really, at the start of the stroke, a really hard slam, and then the second half will be quite light. Or they're putting sort of trying to put constant pressure and acceleration on the whole way through the stroke. So as it pertains to um, having you here to give an expert's insight on how someone like me can train for my sport, uh, I have a strength background. Um, not that I've been poor at endurance, but endurance is definitely not my background. I would say even just looking at me, I probably have a much higher ratio of fast twitch fiber type compared to slow twitch. So how should I approach my supplementary training with something like rowing ergometers or, or biker ergometers, that stuff, that kind of stuff? How, sh- how can I use that to improve my kettlebell sport, which in and of itself is similar to the, the physiological requirements that yours. So look at you as an athlete. So what part do you find the hardest in say an event? So like, is it, are you feeling good off the start middle your leg or is it getting that sort of final three minute push in? Oh, this is, this is interesting because now I have to kind of get my take on my sport across to you and have it make sense. Um, Well, I definitely find that the more I pay attention to my technique, the better off I do. And um, definitely if I'm... So in kettlebells, we uh, compete with different weighted kettlebells, basically. Um, I guess it'd be the equivalent of um, rowing in uh, honey versus rowing in water, right? If you could change the resistance, basically. So, so oh, even the boat classes, rowing in a single versus rowing in an okay. eight, it's a very different feel. Okay. Yeah. So um, when I move up in bells, the, the requirement for make sure my technique is on point is even greater, but also make sure that my pacing is not too fast and I don't blow a gasket um, is really important because I don't want to get that oxygen debt. I think historically for me, especially with the snatch, so for for the snatch, the limiting factor is, is not, not really necessarily um, physiological factors as much as it is grip. Um, but historically, especially with my current competition, Bell, I've had a hard time getting to the end of that 10 minutes without um, pacing myself. And so, but I'm really trying to break that 200 rep barrier in, in my 24 kg snatch. And I've hit like 180. Uh, but I did have to put it down with like maybe a minute to go. Uh, so, I mean, I know that the cardio is more or less there, I think, but I don't know. So sort of, See, this is, at, it's going to be hard yeah. for you to, to, no, no. to, based on this. No, I see what you're saying. Cause it's sort of the same thing with rowing is it's, we do, I think our uh, race is slightly over 200 strokes. So we're doing okay. a bit quicker. Interesting. I think it's two, two, under 300 last time I checked. Okay. So it's not too dissimilar. Um, but then if you're sort of that last minute's really a struggle, I would say you want to do like even once or twice a week, just a little bit longer pieces on the erg. Okay. So we're talking sort of into that 40 minute to an hour range, not necessarily right in a row. Good like God, three, man. Three by, three by 15 <laughs> minute, like two minute rest, get right into it. And should I be focusing on maintaining that stroke rate then? Or, okay, so if I want to get that 200 strokes, those yeah. 200 reps, yeah. should I be working at that? Uh, we, we go by RPM, so that would be 20 RPM, basically. Should yeah, I so be working at that 20 from, RPM? You can go right, yeah, right at 20 and do it at fairly high power, or you, you can even do it above. So if you're like... 
if we're doing say a, a longer workout we'll sit between 22 and 24 strokes per minute or rpm for you guys mm-hmm. so uh, it's a bit lighter load so it'd be a bit more you'd feel get a bit more power endurance yes yes yeah. so is it how difficult is it then so when you're doing your uh erg training um replicating that resistance um with the with how it feels on the water like how do you adjust the erg to get it exactly right with the resistance on the water and when do you dial back that resistance and and when do you do that and how long are your pieces when you dial it back and um so we basically use a set drag factor it's called the drag factor on it so for on there's a button on the rowing machine that says display drag factor because every dial on the side is slightly different so for women's we use 110 as the drag factor which usually sits about a three or a four on the side dial uh for men is 120 which is sort of into that somewhere in the five range Mm -hmm. and that's basically what we call the resistance in theory of water it's you can only get so close but as long as we're consistent with it on our training it seems to work out all right Mm -hmm. and so for those 40 minute to an hour sets or those three by 15s where are you setting that drag factor so that that at that 110 or 120 depending on men's or women's just the same as water okay what would the frequency be like with that um in inside of a week how many times for like the longer pieces yeah, for the longer pieces, and so would you would you do three by fifteens and maybe a one hour in a single week, or oh, do yeah. they? Okay, yeah. So like for especially this time of year, we're probably doing four of our workouts a week or high volume workouts, and then that will decrease as we get closer and closer to competition. So we basically spend all winter just it's all this aerobic base endurance stuff, and as we get closer and closer to competition, we'll probably do once twice a week as maintenance. Okay. How much of that is a waste of time if you're not doing it mindfully, if you're not focusing on... Now, obviously, it's difficult on there because it's not exactly the same. But um, how much do you stress the technical points when they're doing these training pieces? Uh, it's quite a bit, actually. I mean, it's I'm always there usually when my athletes are doing it. So it's they'll get a reminder every three, four minutes about something that we're working on. Even put it up on the chalkboard right in front of their faces. So hopefully, so do these sessions have a theme of what you're particularly working on, or do you kind of walk around your athletes and you kind of see something? And you're like, okay, I want you to focus on this for each stroke for the next however many minutes. Um, it's it sort of go athlete to athlete. There's usually common problems among mm-hmm. athletes, so you'll have a group of athletes that are doing quite a similar thing wrong. So you'll sort of bring it up all right you guys are doing this every so often like you can do a bit of technique work on the erg so we might pull them off their pace and just have them work on something set a body position that sort of stuff for a minute or two and then get them back into it Mm -hmm. okay um i was thinking actually uh i did a a a a set the other day of long cycles so that's a clean and jerk with a pair of bells that are a uh, a bell weight below the one that I com- compete with now. Um, and I was going at the upper limits of what, of the pace that you can do for that particular, um, event. So I was doing around 11, 12 RPM and I hit the five minute mark and I did start to slow down a fair bit and my shoulders were getting tired. Um, cardio wise, it wasn't hitting me quite that hard, but by six minutes, I could have kept going, but I set him down. I was just like, I I think I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish here. Um, but so to be 
in long cycle to be like the, the best, you kind of want to be at like one, 110 reps inside of that 10 minute period. So working at 11 or 12 RPM, um, you can win events, uh, with a much slower pace than that, depending on who your competition is, but that's like the elite level. That's, that's how fast they go for a a whole 10 minute block. Um, how can I take my sets with the 20 kgs where I want to set it down at six minutes? How can I take that pace to a 10 minute set? What should I do in my training with, with an erg? With erg. So I would look at, um, we're going to work at a bit higher rate. So we'd probably like that. Oh, so even over competition, over, over a little bit over competition pace on the erg. So we're talking like, I'd like you to work at 26, 28 strokes per minute. And we're going to say do four by six minutes. Mm-hmm. on the air again you're gonna get four to five minutes so of maybe like time. 25 maybe 30 percent faster than yeah you would normally go okay. yeah so you're gonna you're gonna feel the burn you're gonna get a rest you're gonna build that hurt yep. back up get a rest build it up just really burn exhaust those muscles right and for how long you're gonna do probably four sets of six minutes four sets of six minutes yeah um i've had a lot of luck doing interval work I never really go as high as six minute sets, five or six minutes. Um, but that could be a really good missing piece that I could start incorporating. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause a lot of like, you think, okay, rowing's a, it's even a shorter, the race is a shorter amount of time than kettlebell sport mm-hmm. is. We're talking six, seven, eight minutes. Right. But some of our training is longer because we want to build all those energy systems up. So we really look at... And like one can, supports the yeah. other. So we can like... Because the, with the rowing machines, we can break it down so much. We get so much information off of those when we're doing testing that we get feedback on every stroke, on every piece, how much wattage each person's producing and figure out where, say, an energy system is letting them down. Are you relying more on the wattage feedback or perhaps HR feedback? Uh, wattage is the easiest to use, mostly because heart monitors are expensive to hook an entire club up with. Yeah. So we use, the easiest way is to do wattage, but so we'll do a, a peak power test, so the highest wattage they can possibly get on the machine. We'll do a one-minute test, so the highest average wattage they can hold for a minute. It's a, basically an all-out test. Uh, 2,000-meter test, which is a race distance. We, we, that gives us sort of a VO2 max score, uh, and then a six-kilometer piece, mm-hmm. and that'll give us sort of an anaerobic threat or aerobic threshold, anaerobic threshold. Mm-hmm. And then we'll compare those. So say if an athlete's doing their VO2 max work at 55% of their maximum power. Maximum peak yeah. output. Output, we know that they're not going to see any improvement in that score until they become more powerful. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, if they're only working at, say, 25% of their maximum output, well, we know they're strong enough. We just need to work on pushing up that VO2 max. How often do you guys check the peak output? Uh, peak output we do quite often we'll do that once twice a month i could see it being challenging to use that number accurately when you're hitting that peak output you're you are going to maybe be sacrificing some technique yes yeah is is that important though if you're just looking for that peak output that that physiological feedback how important is it to make sure that they're maintaining like as close to perfect uh, to technique. a certain point is if they don't have good technique they're not going to see a good number no matter how hard you try yeah, there's limited carryover of that so, information if the technique yeah not so there. if i see someone doing a test and they've thrown the technique out the water 
or out the window. You're like, I, do it again. Yeah. Better. So we'll just, <laughs> we won't even use that as a result. So it doesn't count. So they'll have to come back the next day and do it again. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. How important is it for them to do it on a completely different day? Um, you could probably do it like 20 minute, 30 minute rest yeah. and you don't see a water drop off. I mean, we might see a bit, but we're not talking like one or two Watts isn't going to, mm-hmm. we're looking for a general trend, not sort of a specific number. Yeah. I made a mistake the other day at my spin class. I ended cause I had to do two classes back to back and I ended the first one with a couple of wing gates. And then <laughs> I was like, shit. In like 10 minutes, I got to teach another one of these. And I, that was a really bad idea. Cause now I just feel like taking a nap. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. All right. Well, um, you know, we covered a lot of ground and, uh, I found this immensely interesting and helpful. Um, and I thank you very much for coming no in problem. Thanks and, for having me. and to show, uh, for ballistic strength to show our appreciation for you coming in. I'd like to present you with a club t-shirt Sweet. that, uh, <laughs> you can pick out the right size and everything, but, uh, yeah, I, it was great to have you here. Awesome. Thanks for having me. No problem. All right. Until next time, guys. 